Brad Hennick. Thank you, Marty. Mike, that is so true. So true. You know, throughout Scripture it says, hear the word of the Lord, and that's what we're all about. Okay, if you'd open your Bibles to Revelation 9, as you know, we've been in Revelation now for several months, and we are now in the period of time of history called the Great Tribulation. A couple weeks ago, we said the three purposes of the Great Tribulation are to God's going to make an end of evil and evil ones. He's going to inaugurate a worldwide revival, and he's going to break the will of the Jewish people so that he can inaugurate his kingdom, his messianic kingdom on earth. Now, much of the tribulation period, it's about a seven-year period, consists of three sets of judgments. We're almost done with the second set. The first set is the seal judgments. There's seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, seven bowl judgments. We're going to get to the trumpet judgments today, most of them, and then we'll get to the bowl judgments in chapter 16. Now, last week we reviewed chapter 8, which was really the opening of the seventh seal. And we talked about the first four trumpet judgments on planet Earth. And as you recall, the judgments last week impacted only the physical Earth, the planet, the water, the sea, the uh, marine life, the plants and animals and grasses. The last three trumpet judgments affect people. It is a direct judgment upon people, and that's what we're going to get to today. I just need to tell you up front, chapter 9 is probably contains some of the most confusing and controversial passages in the entire book of Revelation. There's more ink spilled on trying to identify who Babylon is in chapter 17 and 18, and the identity of this army of locusts and horsemen in this chapter. They've been hotly debated by very knowledgeable people for centuries and very sincere people. So there are there can be multiple interpretations, but as you recall from our lesson on homile, hom, uh, hermeneutics a few weeks ago, we're going to interpret scripture from a very literal, plain, common sense perspective in the belief that God says what he means and means what he says. He's the author of communication. He doesn't have trouble communicating to us. We have trouble obeying what we know. So we're not going to invent interpretation. We let Scripture interpret Scripture. By the way, if you want to know what Scripture says, Scripture will interpret Scripture by far. Let the context interpret the text. Here's our key idea today. Everything and everyone in heaven, on earth, and in hell is under the complete control of God himself at all times. That's not just theory, because I know this week some of us are going to run into the situations and we're going to be reasonably convinced that God's on vacation. Because your circumstances will not be in alignment with your desires. They're probably going to be painful, they may be frustrating, and we're going to need to be reminded that God is in control of my circumstances. If he can run the universe, I suspect he can handle us. Amen? Amen. All right. Our job is to surrender to his plan. Chapter 9, verse 1, And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. Now, star in Scripture, angel, angelic beings are very often referred to as stars. There's astronomical bodies, and then there are stars that are personalities. In this case, we know this is a personality because later on in this verse it says he, it says him. So we're indicating a person. So this is a star in the sense of a celebrity, right? A rock star, a music star, a sports star. This particular star is a very famous star because he's known in heaven, he's known on earth, and he's known in hell. Right? Very, very famous individual. And this star has fallen. Now, it's past tense with continuing results, which means this star had fallen in the past and remains fallen today. Okay, he's still fallen. John is not saying, I saw him fall. John says, I'm observing that he has fallen. He had fallen in the past and he remains fallen today. And Isaiah 14 tells us who this is. If you're looking for a cross-check here, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, two very good cross-references. They record the fall of Lucifer. Isaiah 14, 12 says, How have you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn? You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. Now, Lucifer means day star or brilliant star, light bearer. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's Nakash. Nakash means the shining one. Nakash was the one that in the Garden of Eden deceived Eve, Lucifer. You all know the story. Satan wanted God's job, and as a result, he lost his own job. He was the prime minister of heaven, and he wanted the top job. 
Revelation 12.4 tells us that when he led a revolt in heaven, a mutiny, he tried to take over heaven, one-third of the angels followed Lucifer in committing treason. And that got him, of course, evicted from heaven. Right? Now, you need to understand that Satan can't reside in heaven, neither can the fallen angels, but they have access to heaven. They visit heaven, and we know that because Job 1 tells us that, right? It says that Satan showed up in heaven and said, <clears throat> by the way, God said, have you considered my servant Job? So we know that Satan has access to heaven. As a matter of fact, we know that Satan spends quite a bit of time in heaven. Uh, most people assume that Satan lives in hell. Probably not true. The Bible says that Satan is what? The prince of the powers of the air. The Bible says that Satan has access to heaven. If you were Satan, why would you choose to spend time in hell? Really? We obviously know he's not bound yet. He's very free. He prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour, right? We know he has access to heaven. We know he's busy on earth. Why would he spend time in a place of suffering and punishment called hell? We know that most of Satan's job description today is spent accusing God's people, just like he did to Job. Revelation 12.10 says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, The accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. Check this out. He who accuses them before our God day and night. So Satan's pretty much full-time job description is accusing God's people before the bar of justice in heaven. He's the visiting prosecuting attorney in heaven. Now, the name Satan means accuser, adversary, slanderer. <clears throat> Here's the sad part. Much of Satan's accusations against God's people are true. We are sinners. Yes. We do sin. Yes. Satan is the tattletale of heaven. He goes in and says, God, did you see so-and-so? Did you see that Brad Hannock this week? Man, he screwed up three or four times. Five, six times, seven, eight times. I mean, you saw it, right? You ain't going to whack him? He's the tattletale. He's the accuser. He's the slander. Good news. We have a defense attorney at the bar of heaven's court. His name is Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the advocate, right? Our advocate. Here's what's really good news. Our defense attorney, Jesus Christ, has never lost a case before God's bar of justice. So much of what Satan accuses you of before God is true, but you have a defense attorney who's already paid the freight for your sin, which is amazing grace. So this fallen star is given a key, right? You can look down and write underline this if you want to. Anytime you see the word key in scripture, here's the clue. The word key always means authority and access. Authority and access. If you've got the key, if you've got the key, you can lock, you can unlock. You can open, you can shut. You can prevent access or you can provide access, right? So the key is authority. Now, Revelation 1.18 tells us that Jesus has the keys of what? Hades and death, right? He controls Hades and death. And this key is to a specific location. And this is going to be real critical to understand an accurate interpretation of this passage. He has the key of what? The bottomless pit literally translates the pit of the abyss or the shaft of the abyss. So the shaft is the access to the pit. I want you to get a picture. It's like a deep opening in the ground that leads to a larger sealed compartment underground. So you have this access shaft, leads to a large sealed underground chamber. Could be a reservoir, could be a cistern. In our day, we would say a large underground tank. So you have a shaft, it opens up underground, and it opens up to a very large container. Now, you need a key because the pit is locked. It's sealed. Why would you seal a pit? Either you don't want people from the outside going in, or you don't want people from the inside getting out, right? So the root of the word abyss, which is the Greek here, means without depth or bottomless, bottomless. When you read scripture and you, and you look at the portrayal of Sheol, the place of the dead, Hades, another Greek term for the place of the dead, the abyss, it's almost portrayed as the center of the earth. I mean, it's almost, you, you get that word picture. You know, when you're at the center of the earth, there is no bottom. You cannot go any lower. If you're at the center of the earth, every direction is up. 
It's ceiling all the way around because you're right at the center. That's the picture. This is the lowest of the low. You cannot get lower than the low at that point in time. So when you use the word abyss or the bottomless pit, literally, it's, it, it's a picture of the spiritual underworld that is invisible to man, but very, very visible to God. Now the term abyss or abusos <clears throat> in the Greek is used in Revelation seven times. There's that seven. It just keeps showing up, right? Seven, 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 right? And it always refers to the abode of demons or fallen spirits. Anytime in Revelation, the abyss always result, result, resorts and describes that. So the abyss is a prison where demons or fallen angels are incarcerated. Now, God imprisons demons and fallen angels due to their sin. If you're looking for a cross-reference, go to 2 Peter 2, 2 Peter 2, 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now, Peter uses the word Tartarus, T-A-R-T-A-R-U-S, Tartarus. He, that's the, his Greek for hell. The word Tartarus comes from Greek mythology. I'm talking about the same place, the abyss the generic hell, which is not act really accurate here, and Tartarus, we're talking about the same place. It's an underground place, lower than the grave, the very, very lowest hell, right? Tartarus is like the old Alcatraz prison. How many of you have been to Alcatraz back in the day? You didn't get sent to Alcatraz unless you were the worst of the worst. As a matter of fact, in Alcatraz, it was a stated objective of that facility, we are not interested in correction. We are interested in punishment. Because their belief system was by the time you got to Alcatraz, you were non-recoverable. It was all about punishment. The abyss is the same thing. When you get sent to the abyss, we're not talking about changing your behavior. We're talking about segregating you from the rest of the universe because you're dangerous and you've done some wicked things. So one of the interesting questions is, if God is going to imprison fallen angels into this location, what kind of angels get imprisoned into the abyss, fallen angels, and what kind of angels are free to do their mischief? Because remember, there's demons that have free access to heaven and earth, and then there's a set of demons that are incarcerated in the abyss. So what did they do to get themselves incarcerated? Because now this abyss is being opened up. Just to get the picture, okay? Look to Jude. Jude, verse 6 and 7. There's only one chapter in Jude. Jude 6 and 7. He's going to tell us, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept, God has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of that great day. Then he explains a little more in verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example and undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So the Holy Spirit is using the earthly example of Sodom and Gomorrah to illustrate the sin of these demons that are imprisoned in the abyss. They did the same kind of sin. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed for the perversion of homosexuality. The men of those cities abandoned God's design for their sexual relationship with women, pursued other men. Recall that God sent angels, right? angels to Sodom to check it out. He said, you know, the sin of the city has come up to heaven. I'm going to send some angels to check it out. Now, you know, some God didn't need to do that here. He knows all that stuff, but he's very, very fair. So he sends a couple of angels to investigate the situation. And the men of Sodom attempted to rape them. They literally attempted to have sexual relationships with angels, and they were destroyed as a result. But the angels in the abyss did the same thing. They violated God-given domain and entered a forbidden realm. I want you to cross-reference Genesis 6. Genesis 6. At the time of Genesis 6, it says that these fallen angels, demons, these were part of the one-third that had rebelled against God way back in the day prior to the, uh, uh, Genesis 1.1. One, some of these angels cohabited with human women and produced a race of hybrid monsters called the Nephilim. This is all in Genesis 6, 1 to 6. The word Nephilim means fallen ones, fallen ones. These fallen angels had left their proper spiritual domain, Jude tells us. As a result, they were immediately incarcerated in the abyss. Now, I want you to understand Satan's goal. You say, why would Satan do such a stupid thing? 
Genesis 3, God told Satan, the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. Right? Eve's descendant is going to destroy you. Now, if you were Satan, what would you assume? I better take care of Eve's descendant because Eve's descendant is going to kill me. What was the first murder? Cain killed Abel. Why did Cain kill Abel? Satan thought Abel was the seed. See, we look back and we go, oh, well, Messiah was coming. Well, they didn't know Messiah was coming in 2,000, 4,000 years. I mean, this was the firstborn, and it was pretty clear that God had regard for Abel's offering. Satan's not stupid. He said, that's the seed that's going to kill me. Let's kill him. Right? Okay, that obviously didn't work because there was Seth born, the appointed one, and, this, and the bloodline of the, of the woman that was going to crush Satan carried on. So Satan says, I've got to corrupt the bloodline of the coming Messiah. I've got to corrupt the bloodline so that they will not be able to produce this coming one who's going to kill me at that point. So I'm going to produce a hybrid race of demon men that Messiah cannot save. Because remember, Messiah is the God-man. You know the only people who the Messiah can redeem? The human race. The seed of the woman. The only people that are able to be redeemed are the seed of the woman, which means you got to be in the bloodline of Adam and Eve in order to be saved. Right? Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. Say yes, you know what I'm talking about, right? So Satan says, I'm going to corrupt that bloodline. I'm going to have demons take on human form, cohabit with women, and produce a hybrid race, the seed of the serpent, the sons of Satan. And Genesis 3 tells us that these, the seed of these um, serpents, the seed of these Nephilim, were so corrupted the human race that he had to destroy the entire planet with a flood. You want to know why the flood came? Sin. You know why sin was so widespread? The Nephilim. You know why the Nephilim showed up? Satan corrupted the gene pool with these angels who left their spiritual domain and actually physically cohabited women in and produced a hybrid race of monsters. And I know you look at this and you go, Brad, this is pretty far out. It is. But it is written. And it's extremely clear. And I challenge you, get your Bibles out, do your homework. Don't believe it just because Brad says it for heaven's sakes. Never do that. You be a Berean. Look at the word yourself. Come to, the, come to the conclusion after you've done your homework. So I want you to get a picture. When it says the abyss, we need to know what it is. It's a prison for especially wicked demons or fallen angels whom God has bound and confined and incarcerated until the last judgment. These demons, these wicked demons, their final sentencing is going to take place in Revelation 20. And their final destination is the lake of fire, but right now they're incarcerated in the abyss. By the way, they're not the only demons incarcerated in the abyss. Remember when Jesus sailed across the Sea of Galilee? Those of you who have been to Israel, you understand that. He went across the Sea of Galilee, he went to the land of the Gadarenes. Right? That's the Decapolis. That's the Greek side. That's the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long, 6 miles wide. Sail across that. So he's now in Greek Gentile territory. And he runs into a demoniac. He runs into a person that's demon-possessed, right? And he lives among the tombs. And he's a gathering at that point in time. And he's possessed by demons. And Luke 8 gives us a story. Luke 8, 28. This individual sees Jesus. He cries out and falls before him and says with a loud voice... By the way, the demons are talking now. What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. You need to underline that. Verse 29. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit, the demon, to come out of the man. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion. For many demons had entered into this man. And the demons were imploring Jesus not to command them to go away into the abyss. Right? You need, to, you need to look at Luke 8 and get that in your mind. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored Jesus to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When you read this, you get the very clear picture that the demons that possessed this man were terrified of being sent to the place of torment called the abyss. It says they implored Jesus. They begged, they pleaded, don't send us to the abyss, right? We'd rather inhabit and possess people. See, most demons are free to roam the earth, but like their leader, like Satan. 
They roam the earth. They go to heaven. They accuse the brethren. They're mischief down here. But the worst of the demons have already been incarcerated. And Jesus, obviously, let them go into the swine. And they obviously killed the swine at that point in time. I don't know whether they got incarcerated in the abyss or not. But at any rate, the worst of the worst is incarcerated here. And now it says that Satan, the fallen star, is given the key to the abyss. It doesn't say Satan owns the key. It says the key was given to him. Who gives Satan the key to open the abyss? Who possesses the key? Verse 18 says, Jesus Christ has the keys of Hades and death. Right? So Jesus gives Satan the key to open the abyss. Verse 2. And Satan opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. What would you expect Satan to do if you give him the key to the prison house that holds his buds? Uh, he's going to let him out. I mean, that would be pretty obvious at that point in time. So he's going to release the very worst of the demons onto the human race. This is like opening up every penitentiary on planet Earth and saying, by the way, all those vicious criminals, etc., they're going to live in your house. They're going to move in next door. That's exactly right. Now, I'm going to give you a paradox, and I hope you struggle with this. Jesus giving Satan the key to open the abyss and let the worst of the worst demons out to torment humanity as evidence of his grace. God in mercy is allowing unrepentant man to have a little advanced fellowship with the demons that they will be spending an eternity with if they fail to repent. God is literally in the first 12 verses of chapter 9 allowing people on planet earth to experience hell on earth for a limited period of time. And you say, well, that doesn't sound like mercy to me. It's extreme mercy. If God allows humanity to experience hell for a limited period of time on earth, you know what? They can see their future if they don't repent. You and I go, well, I'm taking hell by faith. The people on the planet in chapter 9, they're not taking hell by, by faith. They're experiencing it. We have a demonic invasion that covers the planet, right? Whereas we're going to find out here at that point. So God allowing them to experience hell on earth is, a, is extreme grace. See, if you refuse to repent after you experience this taste of hell on earth, you know what we assume? We assume you'd rather spend eternity with Satan than you would with God. Would that be a fair assumption? And God's going to let them have their way. He's going to honor their choice. You need to understand, everyone in hell chooses to go to hell. Don't give me this bit, I really don't want to go to hell, but I really don't want God's way of salvation. If you refuse the way of salvation, you're choosing to go to hell. I talk to people and they go, well, say, what heaven's going to be like? Heaven's going to be a beautiful place, no sin, no suffering, wonderful, people will be nice. And they say, you're going like you are now? If God lets everybody in like you and me without changing us, what's heaven going to be like? Hell, right? I mean, if heaven's supposed to be perfect, how are imperfect people supposed to get in just like they are? They say, well, I'm a good person. Really? Okay, you have to understand that God is drawing a contrast here. He's saying, if you refuse my offer of grace, I'm going to give you a preview of what your eternity will be like. That's grace. That's enormous grace. Anytime God deals with you in time, it's grace. Because you have opportunity to repent. You have opportunity to repent. It says that there's a smoke of a great furnace going up. So the picture is this is great subterranean furnace that produces black choking pollution, covers the land, blocks the sun, and makes breathing almost impossible. And verse 3 tells us, Out of the smoke came forth locusts upon the earth, and power, underline this word, was given them. Underline was given them. The power they have was given them by God as scorpions of the earth have power. Now, this word locust shows up throughout Scripture, and it's always an indication of judgment. Anytime you see locusts, it's always an indication of judgment. Remember that God used the plagues of Egypt to discipline Egypt. Uh, locusts were used then, but the locusts used by God to discipline Egypt were physical, earthly locusts. Now, I want to tell you something. A locust is nothing more than a shorthorn grasshopper. 
that's in the swarming phase of life. Grasshoppers generally are solitary. When they're solitary, there's no big deal. They're not any danger, that's not a problem. But you get a significant drought and you get a rainfall and vegetation begins to grow and they start rubbing their hind legs together, kicks off serotonin in their body and they start to breed like crazy and they produce billions and billions and billions of locusts and that's when they begin to swarm. And when they swarm, they start to look for food and so they fly. This is almost incredible. I cross-referenced this three times. The largest recorded locust swarm in the United States was in 1875. It was called Albert's Swarm and it was 1,800 miles long and 110 miles wide, covering 198,000 square miles. That's larger than the square mileage of the state of California. That is a big locust swarm. It's estimated to contain 12.5 trillion insects, which is not a problem except you realize that locusts eat their own weight every day. About 2.2 grams of food every day times 12.5 trillion, you wouldn't have any ag land left in California. They'd be denuded right down to the dirt. Locust swarms are incredibly destructive and painful and lethal because they always produce famine and pain for humanity, and that's one of the reasons God's using them here. Now, you have to understand that these creatures from the abyss are not earthly physical locusts because they couldn't survive the heat. These locusts are fallen angels. They're demons who look and behave like locusts. Now, you need to understand that demons, fallen angels, do not have bodies. They're spirits, right? Angels don't have bodies either. They're spirits. So apparently God is going to give them the body and form of locusts at this time. God used the words locusts because people understood how destructive they were at that point in time. And it says that the power was given them as the power of scorpions. Now you need to understand this power is delegated, not by Satan, but by God. God empowers and releases these demons. He's not the author of evil, but he's going to permit evil to accomplish his purpose. And a scorpion has power by means of their sting. Look at verse 4. <clears throat> and they, the locusts, I want you to underline the word told. They were told or commanded that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the man who did not have the seal of God in their foreheads. I want you to know that evil is always limited by the power of God. I don't care how bad the planet is, you have no idea how bad it's going to be. I look at people and I go, well, the world's really falling apart. Well, of course it's falling apart. It's a sinful place. What did you think? It's going to get worse. Of course it's going to get worse. You should not be depressed by that. You should be grateful because heaven is getting closer, right? I talk to people all the time, they go, Revelation's so depressing. I said, the king is coming. That's depressing? This is exciting stuff. The king's coming back, right? Okay, we, you should be ready to see him. You should be excited to see him. Is your life that wonderful here? Just wait. Old man, time will catch up with you, too. All right, all right. All right, here's the principle. The people of God are protected by the power of God in accordance with the plan of God. Now, the people of God, those who have the seal, are protected from these demons in accordance with the plan of God. You need to understand, I put the plan of God very, very clearly because some people go, well, I'm the people of God, then how come I got problems? If you have problems in your life, God permitted them to occur. However, some of the problems in your life are as a result of your own foolish choices. Don't blame God for your foolish choices. People talk, well, how come God didn't prevent that? Well, he did give you free will to choose, right? So if you had, you know, there's lots of ice cream back there, but if you ate six bowls of it and got sick, who ate the ice cream? I would say that you ate the ice cream, right? So that's not God's fault. You made a choice. He gave you a consequence, logical consequence. Now, we know that these are not normal insects because normal insects eat what? Plants. These insects are forbidden. These locusts are forbidden to eat plants. They're only allowed to harm people. And the, their judgment targets only who? Unsaved people. Those who do not have God's seal on them. See, chapter 7 records that God put his seal, his mark on the 144,000, right? The Jewish evangelists. If you go back to Revelation 3, verse 12, you need to understand that God himself is going to write his own name, his own seal, his own mark on all the overcomers, all the true believers. 
If you're alive during this time, none of you will be because we will be raptured. And I know I need to do a lesson on ra the rapture, which I'll do, Lord willing, here in the next several months. But those that come to faith during this period of time are going to have the mark of Jesus Christ on them and they will be protected from these demons. It doesn't mean they won't be persecuted. It doesn't mean they won't be killed by the Antichrist. It doesn't mean they won't suffer. It says they will be protected from this demonic invasion. This demonic invasion is strictly for those that do not have God's mark on them, that don't have his seal, that have rejected salvation. You know and I know that God promises to protect us in our trials, but he doesn't promise to prevent all trials. Yes? He allows things to happen to us for our good. So God's power always protects us, but within conformity to God's plan. Verse 5. I want you to see the limitations that God and his sovereignty has put on these demons. Verse 5. And they were not permitted, underline that, you need to understand that evil is limited, to kill anyone, but to torment for five months, underline five months, that's another limitation, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. Here's the principle. God permits pain to punish sin and push the sinner towards repentance. If pain doesn't push you toward repentance, oh, God can always turn up the heat. He doesn't like to. I think that God weeps over the sinfulness of mankind. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God takes no pleasure in the pain of anyone. But he is fully invested in your eternal good. And if, he, if, if pain here causes you to repent, so be it. In heaven, you will be grateful forever that you had the pain down here that brought you close back to him at that point in time. So these demons have power to inflict pain, but they're limited. They can't kill. That's also a sign of mercy. Do you know what Satan wants to do? Satan would absolutely love it if God would give him the right to turn those demons loose and kill everyone. Where do they go when they die? Where do unbelievers go when they die? Where do Christ rejectors go when they die? They chose to go to hell immediately. Right? That's what Satan would love to do. God says you can't kill them, but you can torment them for five months. By the way, the average lifespan of a locust is five months. May to September. Also interesting that the, the period of the rising flood of Noah's period of time was 150 days, five months. I'm not sure what that means, but just an interesting fact. Right? <laughs> I don't know if anybody here has ever been bitten by a spider or a scorpion. A scorpion is orders of magnitude more painful than a spider, I'm told by people. A scorpion sting is initially quite sharp, and then it produces a very numbing ache. And there's two kinds of scorpion poison, just FYI. There's a hematoxin. Hematoxin produces very local effects. It's going to be pain, swelling, discoloration. That's not the problem. It's the neurotoxins. That's the ones that get you. The neurotoxins can cause convulsions, paralysis, cardiac irregularity, and even death. So the neurotoxin in a... Uh, in a scorpion sting is very painful, and by the way, the pain doesn't go away in 15 minutes, even if you put ice on it or pack it in mud. It can stay with you for a long time. Now, what Scripture is saying is every unredeemed person on the planet at this point in time is going to undergo oppression and torment and pain from demons. That is literally hell on earth. Have you noticed that God is ratcheting up the pain point? He's warning, but he's ratcheting up the pain. He wants to get people's attention. He wants repentance. Verse 6, the pain is going to get so bad that in those days men will seek death and will not find it. And they will long to die and death flees away from them. This is a complete reversal of normal. Normally, see, death is an enemy who chases us. What do we do? We will do anything to not die. Right? We, we take some foul-tasting meds. We go through chemotherapy. We do all sorts of stuff not to die, right? Because we don't want to die at that point. Here the reverse happens. The demonic pain is so great that people pursue death as a friend. The passage says they intensely desire death. They literally lust after death. Right? Same picture. You understand where I'm going with a single-minded passion. Very, very highly probable that suicide attempts and homicide attempts are absolutely going to explode during this period of time because people want to escape the pain. 
You put people in enough pain, we'll do almost anything to attain at that point. The problem is that pain produces the desire for death, but death runs away. Literally, death takes a vacation. Death's on holiday. You can't find them when you want them, right? Now, it doesn't say how death is going to elude them. I don't know whether they're going to lose their courage. I don't know whether God will supernaturally intervene to prevent suicides, whether bullets don't work, knives don't work, but I do know that God does not let them escape the demons through death, which is also a sign of his mercy. And you go, what do you mean that's a sign of his mercy? God sends demons to torment people and then prevents the way of escape. Well, in this case, death is not a way of escape. Death is an entry ticket to where? Hell. Is that grace? No. God gives grace when he prolongs the earthly pain for five months, doing what? Pushing them to repentance, right? So your eternity can be secured. This is the mercy of God, and I know people look at this and go, boy, God brings pain and that's mercy. Yeah, from an eternal standpoint, it's great mercy. Because if he simply said, I'm going to produce enough torment from the demons here that everybody suicides and goes to hell, who loses? The unredeemed are now forever separated from their Savior and their King and from heaven. That is a loss of e eternal magnification. So God says, I'm going to bring you torment, but I'm going to prevent you from escaping the torment. You know why? To give you a taste of what hell is like. Because in hell, you can't kill yourself. You can't suicide your way out of hell. And the pain will be worse than this, and there's nothing you will be able to do about it. You will be stuck in that position of extraordinary pain beyond our comprehension, and you won't be able to do anything about it. Here, God says, by the way, it's a five months, 150 days. But I'm giving you a taste of what the future is going to be if you don't repent. That's mercy, enormous mercy. Verse 7, he gives us a description of these locusts. Next few verses, the appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads, as it were, crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. I want you to take your pen and underline every time you see the word like. John is going to use the word like very frequently. He is describing a spiritual reality that's very difficult to describe, let alone understand. We know next to nothing about this spiritual realm. We don't live there. We live in a physical world. We do know that when angels visited humans in Scripture, they often appeared as anatomically correct human males. Many, many, many people talking to angels in Scripture didn't even know they were talking to an angel. So angels can and regularly do look like humans. Now, I don't know what they're, you know, you've seen the movie Transformers. I don't know if they've got the ability to transform. I don't know. There's just a whole lot of stuff we don't know here. But all human descriptions of spiritual beings suffer from a lack of vocabulary to describe what is non-physical. Right? We remember, remember when Isaiah saw the throne, Isaiah 6, and he's trying to describe the seraphim, and Ezekiel 1, and, and we just went through Revelation 4 and 5, and we're looking at the thrones, and then the four living creatures, and they got a face of a lion, the face of a calf, and the face of an eagle, and the face of man. All of these writers are struggling to get human language to describe something that is, in essence, non-physical, right? They're trying to say, well, it's kind of like this. It's like this. It's like this. They're trying to put a word picture in your mind to get the most accurate interpretation, the most accurate description of what it is, and the Holy Spirit is supernaturally giving them those words. So these are God's words, and he's using these words on purpose. We don't even know the size of these locust demons. They might be the size of actual locusts. If you had a locust the size of a human and they stung you, I don't think it would cause pain. I think you would be dead. Right? Okay? So we don't know some things. Joel 1 and Joel 2, if you're looking for a cross-reference, Joel 1 and Joel 2, very, very good description of locusts that look like horses. By the way, in Italian and German, you know what the word for locust is? Hay horse. Hay horse and little horse. They actually, if you see a blown up picture of a locust, you will look at their head and go, it looks like the head of a horse. Well, yeah, that's what he says, right? But literally, go magnify a locust. Seriously. Go look, go look at one under a microscope or a picture of one. Amazing. It says, they had, as it were, another metaphor or, or another trying to describe it, crowns like gold. And these word for crown is Stephanos, which means the crown of victory. 
What we think it means is it probably indicates that victory was promised to these demons for a five-month period. In other words, they were going to be invulnerable for five months. We don't know what happened after that period of time, but you weren't going to get rid of them for that five-month period. It said they had faces like men, which means they're intelligent, they're rational, thoughtful, sentient beings. Verse 8, they had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth was like the teeth of lions. Apparently, they're talking about long hair. I don't know whether they're talking about seductiveness. I don't know whether they're talking about the ability to lure. I don't know whether they're talking about long insect antenna. Could be all the above. So understand, we come to this with a great conviction that God's communicating to us, but we also don't want to invent the meaning. God means what he says, says what he means. It says they had the teeth of lions. Well, we do know that both locusts and lions are rapacious. They're insatiable for food. They're insatiable for food. Both locusts and lions devour. Locusts devour plants. Lions develop, consume animals at that point. How many of you ever read the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis? Highly recommended. Highly recommended. Uh, interesting, it's, it's a dialogue between a senior and a junior demon and their conversation and their strategy to seduce, displace, uh, and distract Christians from their walk and non-Christians from following Jesus Christ. Fascinating. Good read. And he describes Screwtape the demon as ravenous, ravenous, which is interesting. Locusts are described as ravenous, and so are demons, which means they want to consume. Verse 9, these locust demons had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. So this word breastplate can describe a covering for the chest, like a, 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 a protection, or it can refer to the chest itself. It's interesting, this same word we use for blessed prate, you know what it translates into? Thorax. Thorax. What's a thorax? It's the chest of an insect, right? You got a head, thorax, and abdomen, right? Okay? So it's interesting. Middle. I have no idea what the sound of millions of locusts make when flying, but I, I, I um, YouTube locust swarms. If you want some interesting video of what a locust swarm looks like, but close and personal. Um, you'd be really want to careful not to ride your bike with your mouth open. <laughs> yeah, you'd want to keep your mouth shut. There's, it's pretty thick out there. Pretty thick out there. Yeah. <clears throat> it says they have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. So we know that physical locusts don't have tails like scorpions, so we do know that these are not literal physical locusts, but God's using them to describe these demons that have the power. Now, verse 11 says, they have a king over them, and the angel of the abyss is their king, and his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek he has the name Apollyon. Now, we know this is kind of interesting because Proverbs 30, 27 tells us that earthly locusts have no king. When you see a swarm of locusts, there is no brain, right? There's not a queen bee or a queen ant. Locusts don't have any leader. Locust swarms don't have any leader. This locust swarm of demons does have a leader, and their leader is the angel of the abyss, which is interesting because now we have the abyss, which is a prison for incarcerated demons who are especially violent and wicked, have crossed the line that God told them not to, and inside that abyss, apparently, there's a leader, and it's called the angel of the abyss. Some think this is Satan. I would disagree with that because Satan is the prince of the power of the air, Satan is found in heaven, which means he has freedom to maneuver and move. Most demons do. Or Satan's prowling around on the earth doing what? Looking to devour people, looking to destroy people. Satan is the one who was given the, the, the key, the fallen star was given the key to open the abyss from the outside. The angel of the abyss is on the inside. So my suspicion would be that this angel of the abyss is not Satan. It's probably a high-ranking demon serving in Satan's hierarchy. It's interesting that even in the abyss, somebody's in charge. Even in our prisons today, there's a hierarchy, isn't there? There's always a hierarchy. Nobody can live without order. The word abaddon, by the way, means to perish, to be ruined, to become lost. Both abaddon in the Hebrew and apollyon in the Greek translate into the English word destruction. Destruction which means everybody in the abyss is ruined, right? Ruined. Eternally, eternal destruction. Their next step is going to be the lake of fire. We know that. So the Hebrew word abad is usually associated with Sheol, with the place of the dead. Verse 12 
says the, almost the exact same thing as the last verse of the previous chapter. Go back to chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 13. And I looked, and I heard an eagle flying amid heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Right? Go to verse 12 of chapter 9. What does it say? The first woe is past. Behold, two more woes are coming after these things. If you think this is bad, read the last half of chapter 9. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. Here's the principle. God in mercy always warns before judging. But judgment is coming, so be ready. One of the things you'll notice in Scripture, by the way, God is a very just God, but he's also a very compassionate God. Nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in Scripture will you see the judgment of God fall on people without warning. Nowhere. Always in Scripture, God warns. He says, turn from your wicked ways or I'm going to judge. Some people turn, some people don't turn. When people do turn, God relents. Probably the most famous example of that is the city of Nineveh. Nineveh had been an enemy of Israel for centuries. Very, very cruel people. Lots of murder, infanticide. I mean, a horrible place. God sent Jonah there, which means dove. Jonah very reluctantly preached to them. Actually, he said, 40 days and you're going to get yours. God's going to nuke you at that point in time. And what happened? Miracle of miracles, they repented. They repented. God withheld judgment and Jonah got mad because he wanted all those people nuked. He said, how can it be these enemies of Israel, you relented, blah, blah, blah. You're compassionate, God. You shouldn't be compassionate except to me. You should hammer those people. That's very selfish and that's what we human beings do at that point in time. So you need to understand the principle. God judges, but God warns first, always warns first. Now, we talked a couple weeks ago that Second Peter tells us that because God is gracious and gives people time to repent, humanity typically says, well, judgment's not coming at all. So eat, drink, and be merry because I don't need to repent. I mean, he hasn't come in 2,000 years. The key central theme of Revelation is very simple. The king is coming back. For 2,000 years, people said, well, he ain't showed up yet. Does that mean he's not coming? No, it just means his timeline is not your timeline. And we deal with this every day. How many of you felt in God dealing with you that he usually shows up early versus showing up late? The vast majority of us say, well, yeah, I, uh, God, you can come and fix this problem like now as opposed to waiting, right? I, I would really prefer that you fix my problem today. Why would you wait? In other words, why would God wait? Maybe God wants to show mercy. Maybe God has somebody in your life that needs to repent before he ratchets up the pain. See, God is patient because God loves more than we love. Most of the time, we want God to show mercy to us and justice for those schmucks. Right? And we want long-suffering for us and we want the hammer for them. Right? God says, no, I will come when my time is perfect. And we say, well, okay, I can see that in Revelation, but what about my life? How does that work at that point in time? God in mercy warns us all the time, doesn't he? He says, change. Do this. Don't do that. Can't you read the sign? Right? I wrote it down. Ten Commandments. Okay? If you do this, this happens. If you don't do this, this happens. God warns before judgment, but judgment is coming, so be ready. So you read this book of Revelation, and I talk to people from time to time, and they go, whoa, this just terrifies me. And I say, why would it terrify you? Why would this terrify you? Well, the world's falling apart. Of course. Did you think you're going to stay here forever? I hope you don't think you're going to stay here forever. If you're going to stay here forever, that would be the curse. Stuck on a sinful place forever. That would be a serious curse. That would be hell on earth. 
So God's giving these people a taste of hell to promote and push them into repentance. Yes? Does God do the same thing for us? Has God ever allowed pain in your life to turn your hearing aid on? Has God ever allowed pain in your life for you to just maybe consider that your current path might not be the best one? Say yes. yes. So then pain is a blessing. Here's a principle. Yeah, it's small though. Yeah, yeah. You know who determines the size of the dose? The king determines the size of those. Here's a principle for you. I've said it a hundred times for those of you that are new. Anything that draws you closer to Jesus is by definition a blessing. Write it down. Don't look at me. Write it down. A blessing is anything that draws me closer to Jesus. A blessing is anything that draws me closer to Jesus. A blessing is anything that draws me closer to Jesus. That's a blessing by definition. And some of you are going to go, a blessing is blank that draws me closer to Jesus. No, no, no. Anything that he chooses that draws you closer to Jesus. All right. God shows so much grace in the middle of judgment. He wants people to spend eternity with him. His mercy is evident in the middle of very, very, very hard judgment. He is tormenting people for their sin, but he wants them to repent. And that's the way he deals with us. Okay, here's the key idea. When you read this, you must understand who's in control. Who is in control of all things. Everything and everyone in heaven, on earth, and in hell is under the complete control of God himself at all times. When you read this, you need to underline was given, was given. Over and over you'll say, it was given for so-and-so to do so-and-so. It was given for so-and-so. Who, who does the giving? God does. God is in control of everything. The people of God are protected by the power of God in accordance with the plan of God. I can hear people say, well, I like the protection part, and I like the power, but what happens if I disagree with the plan? That's where we're going to find out whether you're going to obey or not obey. God protects you as he sees fit. They were protected from demons, but many of them were still martyred. You know what happens when you're martyred? You go be with Jesus. Is that a good thing? Yeah, none of us are signing up for that list, but if that's God's plan for our life, then so be it. Because you have eternity with your king. I'm telling you, many of us have family and friends that are in glory right now. You know what they would say to us if they could call you on your smartphone? They'd say, you have no idea. You have no idea. You think you're living down there in the cesspool of sinful earth. Really? You have no idea. The people of God are protected by the power of God in the course of the plan of God. Number three, God permits pain to punish sin and push the sinner toward repentance. By the way, that's us too, because sometimes we sin, we need to repent. And lastly, God in mercy always warns before judgment, before judging. But judgment is coming, so be ready. All right, are you with me so far? All right, read ahead. I, I, I don't mean to terrify you, but uh, the last half of this chapter is harder than the first half. But God's mercy is at work because he is sovereign. Okay? Now that you know, do.